0: We need a a couple men, a few of you, if you wouldn't mind sticking around after church uh, today to help kind of put things back together. Brother Leggett, would you oversee all of that? So I need about three guys who would be willing to help with that. One, two, three, thank you. Four. All of you see Brother Leggett, please, and we'll get things put back together. One person said, hey, Pastor, just my opinion here, but I think we should just leave it like this. And... And... (laughs) The reason was because it forces everybody to sit in a different place and sit next to somebody they don't even necessarily like and, or know, and, uh, and it's a good change, and I thought, I thought to myself, well, I'm all for that, but we've had two weeks for people to do that, so let's put it back to the way it was. <laughs> that makes me more, more comfortable, and like, you can still sit next to somebody. You can still sit in a different place. Uh, you just have to make yourself do that, so... Um, I know that the pews get grooved in to your shape, you know, and you have to have your spot, which is okay as long as you don't, as long as you don't let it overtake you and you go to sleep on Sunday afternoon, right? Thank you guys for uh, volunteering to do that, and uh, we'll give a little time for fellowship or whatever afterwards, and then kind of you can kick people out after that, okay? And then don't forget to sign that card, birthday card for Soraya, please. Uh, speaking of which, there's some things we've been praying about. You remember Ahmed me mentioning that, that he was going to be going find his wife and his sister and then be reunited with them and bring them back. heard from Brother Noah this morning that uh, he made it into the country and he is with his wife and his sister and in about two weeks they're going to be working their way back. And so praise the Lord for answered prayer, number one, and then number two, let's pray to that end, that uh, there would not be those complications, okay? Just wanted to share that with you, and prayerfully that's a blessing to you. The Lord is answering prayers in a very specific way, and so we praise Him for that. Take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 13, please. Matthew chapter 13. I want to draw your attention to verse 24. We're going to read verses 24 to 30, and then we're going to skip down To verse 36 through verse 43. The title of the message this afternoon is, Are You Wheat or Tares? Are You Wheat or Tares? Look at verse 24 with me of Matthew chapter 13. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat. And went his way, but when the blades sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came, and said unto him, Sir, didn't thou uh, sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it tares? And he said unto them, An enemy hath done this. The servants said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay, lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Let them both grow until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Skip down to verse 36. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house. And his disciples came unto him, saying, Declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. He, said, he answered and said unto them... He that soweth the good seed is the Son of Man, the field is the world, the good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil, the harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels. And they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and them that do iniquity and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. Again, I want to speak to you this afternoon on this subject, Are You Wheat or Tares? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you again use your word? We thank you for it. And Father, your word is quick and powerful. It's alive. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. Your word is what pierces and divides and discerns the thoughts and intents of men's hearts. And so, Father, we pray that you'd use it to accomplish that end today. In Jesus' name, amen. In context here, Jesus was sitting in a boat speaking to a great multitude of people when He spoke this parable to them. And it wasn't until later on when the multitude was gone away that Jesus sat down with His disciples to explain what the parable of the wheat and the tares means. And the basic meaning of it is that Jesus foretells of the day when the saved and the lost will be separated. The true believer will be separated to life eternal The unbeliever or the fake believer is going to be separated to everlasting fire. I want to talk about this parable that Jesus uses to illustrate the kinds of hearts, the hearts of men, and make some applications for us in the end of it. But first of all, let's talk about, first of all, the story of the parable itself. If we go all the way back to verse 1 of chapter 13, we find that Jesus went out of a house and he sat by the sea, teaching a great multitude. Verse 1 says, "...the same day when Jesus uh, went Jesus out of the house and sat by the seaside." In verses 2 and 3, we find that a great multitude gathered, and so Jesus begins to teach them out of a ship. Verse 2, "...and great multitudes were gathered together unto him, so that he went into a ship and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore." And he spake many things unto them in parables. What we find then in verses 3 down through verse 33 is that Jesus speaks several parables to this multitude. In verses 3 through 9, Jesus begins by giving the parable of the sower. And the parable of the sower is to illustrate four types of soil where the seed, which is the word of God, is sown. And the four different types of soil, the seed of the Word of God falls on, but there's only one type of soil that actually brings forth good fruit. It's the good soil, and it's illustrating the hearts of men. The seed is the Word of God, and there's only one type of soil, the good ground or the humble, receptive heart, that actually brings forth fruit. Then we find that Jesus gives this parable the wheat and the tares, which we're considering this afternoon. In verses 31 and 32, Jesus gives the parable of the mustard seed. And then in verse 33, it's the parable of leaven. And so Jesus speaks to the multitudes in parables. And a parable is a story. It's an illustration of a truth. So there's a particular truth. There's one meaning behind it. And the parable is a story to illustrate that one truth. Jesus is talking about the hearts of men. Then you get to verse 10, and if you look at verse 10, chapter 13 and verse 10, the disciples ask Jesus why he spoke to the people in parables. In verse 10, the disciples came and said unto him, Why speakest thou unto them in parables? And then in verses 11 through 15, Jesus gives several answers. Now look at verse 11. He answered and said unto them, "...because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. For whosoever hath..." Now he's talking about knowledge here. "...those who have knowledge, to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundant. But whosoever hath not from him uh, shall be taken away, even that he hath. Therefore speak I to them in parables... "...because they seeing, see not, and hearing, they hear not, neither do they understand." The reason that they don't see, the reason they don't hear, and the reason they don't understand is because of their heart condition. It's there. It's available. There's access to it. But then Jesus goes on and he says in verse 14, "...in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which saith, "...by hearing ye shall hear." and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see, and shall not perceive. For this people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart, and note this, and should be converted, and I should heal them. So Jesus gives several answers to the question of why do you speak to them in parables? First of all, Jesus shows the disciples what everybody has in common here. Everybody has in common that we can all see, we can all hear. And what he's referring to is that everybody here has access to the truth. Everybody here can hear it. Everybody here can have, has the opportunity to understand it and to see it. Everybody has access to the truth. But then he goes on to show the contrast between the saved and the unsaved. He says, Not everybody understands it, though. And not only do they not understand it, they don't even want to. They have access to it, but they don't want to understand it. In other words, what he's saying is, There are among you. People who act spiritual, who look spiritual, who participate in the spiritual things, but they're not really saved people. He says of these people in verse 15 that these people's heart is waxed gross. What that means is that phrase waxed gross, it means to thicken or to callous. In other words, because of their access to the truth and the constant hearing of it, their constant rejection of it, their heart has been calloused. They're, and you know what happens when you get a callous? From exposure, from work, from whatever, you get that hard skin that, that can't be penetrated. That's what's happening with people's hearts. There's a, a callous over their heart so that the truth that they have access to can't penetrate. This people's heart is waxed gross. And he says their ears are dull of hearing. That means that they're heavy. It means they're tired of hearing. It means that they have so much access to it that they're tired of hearing this truth over and over and over and over again. And the result is that they have closed their eyes. Notice they closed their eyes. It was on purpose. And so Jesus says to the disciples, I speak to them in parables because of this reason. They all have access to truth, but their heart, it's calloused. They're tired of hearing this truth over and over, and they they have closed their eyes because they don't want to see it. They don't want to understand it. And so to illustrate this mix of people, Jesus goes on to give this parable then of the wheat and the tares, growing together. Again in verse 24 of our text, another parable put He forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. And then Jesus says in verse 30 to those who asked the Master, should we go and gather up the tares and root them out? In verse 29, He says, Nay, lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. He says, let them both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, gather ye together first the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them, but gather the wheat into My barn. Jesus says, let them both grow together until the time of the harvest and what that tells us is that there is coming a day of reaping and in that day of reaping the tares will be exposed for what they are and be cast into the fire so i ask the question again as we begin are you wheat or are you tares Then we get down to verse 36, and we find the interpretation of the parable. Verse 36 tells us that Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house, and his disciples came unto him, saying, Declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said unto them, verse 37, He that soweth the good seed is the Son of Man. So the sower of the good seed is Jesus Christ. Verse 38 says that the field that he sowed in is the world. The field is the world. And then he says the good seed are the children of the kingdom. Those are truly saved people, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. So the good seed is the children of the kingdom. That's the saved. The tares are the children of the wicked one. That's the unsaved. Now look at verse 39. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. So the enemy who sowed those tares is the devil. You get down to verse 39 and you find, or the rest of verse 39, you find that the harvest is the end of the world. And the reapers are the angels And then in verses 40 to 42, we find what happens to the tares. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. The Son of Man shall send forth His angels, and they shall gather out of His kingdom all things that offend and them which do iniquity and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. And then verse 43 tells us that the wheat are the righteous who will be with their Father. And so that is the interpretation of the parable. And I think we get the whole picture here of what Jesus is talking about, and He's describing the hearts of men. And so I want to spend the rest of our time, and I won't keep you very long this afternoon, I want to spend the rest of our time on the applications to this parable. What are some of the applications to the parable? Again, a parable is... An illustration of a central truth. The first application that we can make is is that Satan, first of all, opposes the work of God. In verse 25, we find, "...but while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat." and went his way. Again in verse 39, the enemy that sowed them is the devil. We find here the principle or the the truth that Satan opposes the work of God. He's the enemy of God, and he always opposes the work of God. And while God would have all men to be saved, the devil would have all men to remain in their lost condition. And the reason for that is because he wants men to experience the wrath of God that he's going to experience in the lake of fire. 2 Peter 3 9 is that God wants all men to be saved. He's not willing or wanting that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Satan opposes that work of God. There's a reason why when a New Testament church is is, 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 is starting to uh, try to be obedient to the commands of Christ and to preach the gospel to every creature, and and the work of God is is, is starting, there's a reason why the devil comes also and tries to upset and and root out or, or defeat the work of God. Because he opposes the work of God. Satan knows that he has a short season to work, and so he is actively deceiving and blinding the hearts of men to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4 with me. Just hold your place here. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4 in verse 3. The Bible says, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them that which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine un- unto them. Why has Satan blinded the minds of those in this world? lest the light of the glorious gospel should shine in unto them. The reason he's blinded the hearts of men is so that they cannot see with their eyes and understand with their heart their true heart condition before God and ultimately be saved. That is the reason he's blinded their hearts. Satan actively is working to deceive and to blind the hearts of men. He does that through many means, one of which is religion. He uses religion as a tool, as a means to blind the hearts of men to their true heart condition. This is why people want to be parts of churches that, where they feel good and so on, because it doesn't convict them of their sin, which is what they need, so they can understand their heart condition. So let's entertain the masses. Let's, let's give them something that entertains them and makes them feel good. That's the devil actively working to deceive The hearts of men. When does he deceive the hearts of men? Well, we find also in verse 25, if you go back to our text in verse 25, that he works to deceive while God's people sleep. Verse 25 says, But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. He works while God's people sleep. This is why, listen, we, we, need to, we need to awake to righteousness. Now it's high time to awake out of our sleep as God's people because, because souls of men hang in the balance. 1 Peter 5 in verse 8 uh, encourages us and admonishes us to be sober and to be vigilant, not sleeping. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, who is as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. We need to be awake and alert. Look at Ephesians chapter 4 with me. Ephesians chapter 4 Look at verse 27. Ephesians 4:27 says neither give place to the devil. Why do I mention that? Because he is seeking whom he may devour. He's walking about. We need to be sober. We need to be vigilant. Don't give place to him. Why? Because he's working to deceive. And so he works while God's people sleep. But secondly, we also need to understand that Satan's chief method is through imitation. His chief method of opposing God's work, his chief method of deceiving, is through imitation. Go back to our text in verse 26, and we note here in verse 25 that while men slept, his enemy came, his enemy sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. And note this, but when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. In other words, that the tares that were sowed, they looked like the wheat. They had a similar appearance. They looked the same. And it wasn't until there was actually time for fruit that there was a difference that was made between them. Now pay attention. Don't fall asleep. Satan works through imitation. Satan is a master counterfeiter. Look in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. In verse 13. The Bible says for such are false prophets, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Satan is a master counterfeiter. There are false prophets that are mentioned. There are false spirits out there. The Bible says to try the spirits, whether they are of God. There are false spirits that look like the same thing. There's false gospels. Turn over to Galatians chapter 1, please. Galatians chapter 1. And verse 6. I marvel that you are so soon removed from Him that called you into the grace of Christ unto Another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. Paul says to the church in Galatia, I marvel that that you've been removed so quickly from the gospel unto another gospel. And that phrase, another gospel, means which is not another. It's not another one of the same kind. It's a different one. There's only one gospel. And he says, any other gospel that is preached, let him be accursed. Listen, Satan works through imitation. And so there's a gospel out there, you know, the health and wealth gospel. God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. And this message is promoted that, you know, God wants you to thrive in this life, and God wants to bless your life, and He wants you to be wealthy. Just just give your money, and God will bless you a hundredfold. There's also the gospel out there that says all you need to do to be saved is just believe on Jesus. There's repentance But repentance just means that you go from unbelief to belief. It's a false gospel, friend. It is repentance toward God and faith toward Jesus Christ that brings a person to real conversion, real salvation. Repentance towards God means that I understand my guilty condition before God. I understand that I deserve His wrath and His judgment because He is holy. I am not. And I'm in trouble. And I need a Savior. And God, I don't want my life and I don't want my religion. I don't trust in anything other than the fact that Jesus shed his blood for me. I turn and put my faith in Christ. Repentance is a heartfelt sorrow toward God over an understanding that I've offended you because I'm sinful and you're holy and I deserve your judgment. The gospel that says all you have to do is believe on Jesus and leaves out the part of of the fact that we are condemned before God because of our sin is a false gospel. Why am I saying this? Because Satan is a master counterfeiter. Satan, his chief method is imitation. That looks like the thing, but it's not really the thing. Well, that's what wheat and tares are too sometimes. They look the same but only one can bear fruit. Listen, if he can mimic these things, he can also mimic real Christianity with religion. And so he sows what looks like good seed. It's planted along with the good seed, but in reality, it can't possibly bear fruit. And that leads to the second application, and that is this. There are those who profess Christ, but do not possess Christ. Look at verse 26. Go back to our text and look at verse 26. When the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. For a while they looked the same. For a while they grew together For a while, nobody could tell them apart. But when it was time to bring forth fruit, only one of them actually bore fruit. And that's what revealed what was tares or what was wheat. And so the application is there are those who profess Christ but do not possess Christ. Listen, even in good Bible-believing Baptist churches, they can have wheat among the tares. Jesus said in verse 30, let them both grow together until the harvest. They're in the same field. They're in the same place. They're growing together. When the servant said, should we go and gather up the tares? The the, the master said, no, let them grow together because if you go and you try to root out all the tares, you're going to cause damage and you're going to take some wheat too. I got this covered. I'll care for it. Even in good Bible believing Baptist churches, we can have wheat among tares. There can be, quote, Christians professing to be saved, acting as if they're saved outwardly, but they're not truly saved because they don't bear fruit. You know what? There are many things that can be imitated in the Christian life, but genuine fruit cannot be imitated. According to verse 26, it was when the fruit came. That's what separated them. Only one could bear fruit. It can look the same. It could have the same stalk. It could have the same leaves. But only one is going to actually bear fruit. There's a whole lot of things that can be imitated in the Christian life. But genuine fruit cannot be imitated. And this is when the tares are made known that they are actually barren and not genuine. So let's talk about, for a minute, what are some things that people look to in order to convince themselves or others that they're really saved, that they're wheat and not tares. There's a lot of things that people imitate or look to to try to convince themselves that they're truly saved. Like, for example, having a profession of faith. There's a lot of people who say, because I have a profession of faith that is what they look to as evidence of the fact that they're really saved. Well, back in such and such a day, you know, I prayed the prayer and and I asked God to save me. and, and, And so that's when I was saved. I have a profession or some other story of how it came about. I have a profession that I'm saved. I'm saved. And maybe all the while they have some doubts in their heart, but they keep going back to that profession. Well, let me show you something in Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. Try to stay with me. Don't go to sleep. Titus chapter 1 and verse 15. The Bible says, Unto the pure all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their mind and their conscience is defiled. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him being abominable and disobedient and unto every good work reprobate. There are those who profess that they know God, but a profession doesn't prove whether or not they're really saved because He says their works deny it. Their works show and prove what they are. They're abominable and disobedient and reprobate in their mind. People say, I'm saved, and they have this profession, but their life away from church doesn't actually bear that profession out. They can come to church and put on a show and look this certain way, but how they live somewhere else away from church is what they really are. What are you? A wheat or a Mm tear. Profession doesn't mean anything. Some people say, Well, I was also baptized. I have a profession and I was baptized. But look at Acts chapter eight with me, please. Acts chapter eight. you know there are, this is not part of the message or even part of the notes, but it's now it's going to be part of the message, I guess. Here goes. There are people who get offended when you ask them about their salvation testimony. There are people who get offended. By even asking the question, are you a wheat or a tare? Are you saved? Why is that? If people, if someone asks me, are you saved? I say, yes, I'm absolutely saved. I know I am. Tell me how you got saved. I will gladly tell you how I got saved. Let me share with you what Christ has done in my life. But for people to be offended or to have a Little bit of an addict, how dare you question my salvation? I'm not questioning anybody's salvation. I'm asking a question. The Word of God is what discerns the thoughts and intents of a person's heart. That wasn't a part of the message, but I guess it is now. Acts chapter 8, verse 9, look at it. Some people say, I was baptized. Acts 8, verse 9. And there was a certain man called Simon, which before time in the same city he used sorcery and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that he himself was some great one, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And to him they reg- gave regard or had regard, because that of a long time he had bewitched them with sorceries. But when they believed Philip, preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. All right, so here's this guy who has control over people, and he has power over these people, and they gave great regard to these people uh, to the people gave great regard to him, that he's the great power of God, and so on. And he had bewitched them with sorceries. But here comes Philip, and he's preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and preaching Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden, the people believe the the message, and they get saved, and they're baptized, both men and women. Then you get to verse 13. Then Simon himself believed also, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and the signs which were done. Now when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John. "...who when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost, for as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then laid they their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost. And when Simon saw that through laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money, saying, "...give me also this power, that on whomsoever I lay hands I may, uh, and he may receive the Holy Ghost." But Peter said unto him, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent therefore of this thy wickedness, and pray God if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. For I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Then answered Simon and said, Pray ye to the Lord for me that none of these things which ye have spoken come upon me. And they, when they had testified, preached the word of the Lord, returned to Jerusalem, and preached the gospel in these other places. I read that to point out this. Obviously, baptism clearly has nothing to do with salvation. Here was a man who believed and who was baptized, but in the end, Peter said, I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness, And in the bond of iniquity, repent of your wickedness. Lots of people have professions. Lots of people are baptized. None of those things prove whether or not a person is really saved. Some people say, well, I'm a member of a good church. And I have spiritual activity in my life. I serve in ministries. I sing in the choir. I teach a Sunday school class. I do these other things. Surely that means that I'm saved, that I have real spiritual life because of all the spiritual activity. Well, let me point you to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. And notice in Acts 1.15, the Bible says, In those days Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, the number of names together were about 120. So Peter stands up in the midst of this church, 120 members in this church. And they kind of have a business meeting here. And he says, Men and brethren, this scripture must needs be have been fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake before concerning Judas, which was guide to them that took Jesus. For he was numbered with us, and had obtained part of this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the reward of iniquity, and falling headlong he burst asunder in the midst, and all his bowels gushed out, and it was known unto all the dwellers at Jerusalem, insomuch as this that field is called in the proper tongue, akeldama, that is to say, the field of blood. And the context here is they're going about to choose a new apostle. I want you to notice what Peter said about Judas. The Bible says that Judas, in verse 17, was numbered with us, the apostles, and had obtained part of this ministry and i simply point that out to make this application judas walked with christ judas was numbered with the apostles judas had spiritual activity judas even went soul winning he was the money handler but judas wasn't saved Being a member of a church, having spiritual activity, serving in ministry, is not necessarily fruit or evidence that somebody is truly saved. Judas did all of those things, and he was never saved. All of these things mean nothing when it comes to the fruit of real salvation. Judas did every one of these, being numbered with the apostles and still not saved. Listen, people look to all of these kinds of things as proof of salvation, but the truth is, every single one of those things can be imitated or faked. What is it that cannot be faked? What is it that is the fruit Of genuine salvation? What is it that cannot be mimicked or imitated? Well, look with me to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. And verse 4. The Bible says, Galatians 4:4, but when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Because ye are sons, because you're born again, God has sent forth the spirit of God. Into your heart. And what I'm saying here is that the thing that cannot be faked and the evidence of real, genuine salvation is the fact that the Holy Spirit of God takes up residence inside of you and deity living within cannot be faked. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 13 with me. It's unmistakable when deity lives within. You can imitate all kinds of things in the Christian life, but you cannot imitate the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within. 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5, the Bible says, Examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves how that Jesus Christ is in you? except ye be reprobates. How would it be that you don't know only if you're not really saved? Deity living within is unmistakable. But deity living within is also what begins to make a change in your life. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. You can say that you're saved till you're blue in the face. You can say I've got a profession and I've been baptized and I even do some things in the church. You can say those things till you're blue in the face. But what is going to be the real evidence of salvation? That the Holy Spirit of God takes up residence in my heart and bears witness with with my spirit that I'm truly saved and my whole life is transformed and turned around. That cannot be faked. All things become new say that you're saved, you say you're a Christian, what is the fruit of your life? Show the change, the evidence. James says, you can say that you're saved, but I'll show you that I'm saved by all the, the different things that God has done in my life. What I'm saying is, deity living inside is made known by a changed life. If things are the same, you got the same rotten attitude that you've always had, Maybe things haven't been made new. you got the same vile tongue that you've always had. Maybe not at church. That would be bad. But when no one's around. you got the same love for the world that you've always had. And not a love for God to please God? Maybe things haven't been made new. When deity lives inside, it's going to bring about a changed life. What that means is there's going to be a love for the things of God and a love for God's people. I want to be around God's people. I want to be around the things of God. I want to talk about what God's doing I have an inward desire to please God and obey God that was not there before. I have a desire to to be separated from this world that wasn't there before, not to be like it, but to be separated from it. I have a love for God's people. Here's always a good litmus test. And I know this because I was this, all right? This is how I know this. Do you ever get uncomfortable around spiritual people? Like there's just some people that I don't want to be around them because every time I'm around them, it makes me feel bad. Like, for example, they want to talk about spiritual things all the time. That's not what I want to talk about. And maybe every time I'm around them, they want to get into spiritual conversations and ask me things like, okay, what's God doing in your life? got nothing to say. And I hate that. It makes me uncomfortable. Or there's a fellowship time. We're sitting around a fire and somebody says, hey, let's give some testimonies. What's God doing in your life? Or tell me how you got saved. Tell me your testimony. And all of a sudden inside it just starts boiling and turning and I'm uncomfortable because I know my time is coming and I've got nothing to say. How do I make this sound spiritual? how do I make this sound like it'll convince everybody that I'm really saved? Yeah, I was that. But when the Spirit of God really dwells inside, I got all kinds of things I want to say. It's God's work in my life. And I hate the person I used to be. And I'm so glad he's made me what I am today. And he's changing me into his image. And I can't help but say thank you, Lord, and praise him. Let me brag on God for a little bit. It's quiet in here. And it's either because you're sleeping or else it's hitting home and I pray it's hitting home. Do you love to talk about what God is doing? Our testimony times is this giant bore to you, or else they make you really nervous. Not when deity dwells within. You're also going to have power over sin in your life, because of the power of the Spirit of God. There's going to be dealings from the Spirit of God in your heart. Sometimes it's chastisement. Sometimes it's chastening. Because Hebrews 12, 6 says, the Lord scourges every son whom he receiveth. And if there's a son who is without chastisement, he's actually a bastard and not a son. That word means he's illegitimate. He's not really a child of God. What I'm simply saying is this, that these are marks of sonship. They can't be faked, and they can't be mistaken. Spiritual activity can be, professions can be, baptisms can be, but deity living inside cannot be. Sadly, in America today, There are Baptist churches that are filled up with a bunch of tares and some wheat. But Jesus says let them both grow. Don't go trying to root out the ones that are not saved. Because if you go trying to do that, you're going to cause some damage and probably take some wheat with you. There's a day of harvest that's coming. And when the day of harvest comes, the Lord of the harvest, He knows. He knows the difference. And really, the question again comes back to us. Are you wheat or are you a tare? Do you truly possess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Has your life truly changed? since you say that you've believed? You say, well, pastor, I know I'm saved, but I'm burdened for those who may not be. How do we reach those who are actually tares among the wheat? Well, look back to our text in verse 27 again. And I'll close with this. How do we reach those who are tares among the wheat? Verse 27, So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst not thou sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it tares? He said unto them, An enemy hath done this. The servants said unto them, Wilt thou then that we should go gather them up? But he said, Nay, lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Let them both grow together until... The harvest. There's a day of reaping that's coming. And the Lord knows the difference. And so maybe it's not really up to us to go and try to root those out. We let the Lord handle that. We let the Lord take care of that. But, but I want you again to go back to 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 5. Here's what we ought to do. Here's what we ought to do. Hebrews 13, 5 says, Examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates. What should we do? We should just examine our own heart before the Lord. Am I really right with God? Am I truly saved? See, Jesus gave this parable in the context of the good soils. And the disciples said, why do you teach in parables? He said, because some of them they see, but they don't see. They hear, but they don't actually hear. And they've closed their eyes. Their hearts have become dull of hearing or wax gross. They're callous. Their ears are heavy. They're tired of hearing the same things. And they've closed their eyes to the truth. When you examine your own heart you examine whether or not jesus christ is in you am i really saved the heart that is humble before god is the heart that's going to actually see what i really am and they're going to understand what i really am and it's going to cause them to run to the savior there's a lot of times when people know that they're not saved, who sit in pews like this. But they don't want to admit it because they're afraid of what other people are going to think. I have to admit that I've been lost all of this time. I have to show that I've been lost all of this time, and I don't know that I can do that. You know what? That heart is not a repentant heart yet. That heart is not a repentant heart yet because a repentant heart will run to the Savior. I don't care what anybody else thinks. I know I need to be right with God. And then in reality, every one of God's people would rejoice. Every one of God's people would say amen to that. So are you a wheat or are you a tear? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, pray, Lord, you'd help us to examine our own hearts. But I don't know anybody's heart. Maybe this doesn't apply to anybody in here today because I can't see anybody's heart. But this is how you've led. And it's your word that's been opened. So, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to do some real heart examination. When the Spirit of God is there, he's going to bear witness with my spirit that I am a son of God. When the Spirit of God isn't there, true heart examination may reveal some conviction, some exposure, some light shining into my heart that shows me what manner of man I am. Lord, I pray that You just have Your will in these moments, in Jesus' name.